Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we will be beginning our look at Langston Hughes' novel, Not Without Laughter. Most people come across Langston Hughes as a poet, and rightfully so. But he did write one novel, uh, Not Without Laughter, and it is a doozy. A beautifully written coming-of-age tale set in Kansas, centering on a black youth and his family facing deep generational conflicts due to the changing nature of black life at the turn of the century. A lot of the themes we've looked at in the Harlem Renaissance novel, such as mobility, the color line, rural-urban tensions, the legacy of slavery, uh, the changing role of women, all these things are explored very wonderfully in this novel, Not Without Laughter. One of the things that struck me right away with this novel is that it was obviously written by a poet. While many of the novels of the Harlem Renaissance are written in a kind of dialect, I'm not sure the right word here, but it's 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 written at least heavily accented, um, if that's the right word. At least it is written in true-to-life accents, I'll say. This is true of Hughes as well, but it is so instantly understandable. It just flows off the text, and you literally hear it in your mind. This is not the case in some of the other novels uh, I read, such as Home to Harlem by Claude McKay, uh, which I found often having to stop and think about it and do some quick translations and, and work it out. With Hughes, you just read it, and the sound of, of this language is, is in your mind. Maybe I'm just getting more used to it, but it also seems to have something to do with Hughes' training and education as a, and his, his experience as a poet. Hughes was born in 1902 in Missouri, but he was raised in Kansas after his father left the family for Mexico. Uh, he has a John Brown connection through his grandmother, whose husband was killed in the Harper's Ferry raid. So there are deep racial politics, radical racial politics in the family around 1915. Hughes spent some time in Mexico with his father, so he has an international background, uh, like several others of our Harlem Renaissance writers, uh, such as Nell Larson and Claude McKay. Certainly, they had these international connections. It is around this time that he started writing poetry. In June 1921, he started to attend at Columbia University, and he was able to enter into the culture of the Harlem Renaissance through his, his experiences in, in Columbia. He was friends with several major Harlem Renaissance writers, including Jesse Redmond Fawcett, Arna Bontemps, Elaine Locke, Wallace Thurman, and Zora Neale Hurston. Although that last relationship with Hurston was strained over collaboration on a play, which both claimed authorship of. Not Without Laughter came out in 1931 and was at the time a product of his relationship with a literary sponsor named Charlotte Mason. In the 1930s, Hughes spent time in the Soviet Union and in Asia, during which time he seemed to have become more radical, as did many writers of the Great Depression era, you know, turned uh, more radical, uh, more leftist. And you really see this even if you just look at movies from the late 1930s, early 1940s. So you have this deep left-wing influence. Um, these activities led him into trouble in the 1930s. 30s Red Scare, leading to eventually his testimony before the House Un-American Activities Committee Commission. I mean 1950s Red Scare, what am I thinking? 1950s Red Scare, and he had to testify before the House Un-American Activities Commissions. 
Um, he continued to write into the 1960s, but died in 1967 after a problematic prostate surgery. Not Without Laughter seems to be heavily autobiographical, and it had some of the same highlights as Hughes' own life. The growing up in rural Kansas, uh, where an older woman is the dominant figure in the family, an absent father, a back-and-forth relationship with the city. All of these things are parts of the story in Not Without Laughter. Now, those of you who are following this podcast know that there are common themes in Harlem Renaissance literature, especially masculinity and the tension between the rural and the urban, and they're going to come out really strongly in, in this novel. So with that, let's get into Not Without Laughter. This novel has a relatively small cast of characters that play an important role in our hero's upbringing. Um, the first character is Sandy Rogers. Sandy Rogers is this young man who we watch grow up. The first half of the novel is about a year of his life, um, a very formative year in his life. The second half of the novel, things speed up and we, we see him kind of get into high school um, age and, and grow up into a, a young man. Second, we have Angie Williams. This is Sandy's mother. She relies heavily on her own mother to care for Sandy, uh, and she tends to enable her irresponsible husband. And his how irresponsible he is, how much is a product of, of racism, how much is a product of the situation that black people found themselves in in the early 20th century are all things we'll look into. But he at least has an irresponsible reputation, um, and Angie tends to enable that a little bit. The third character is Jim Boy Rogers. This is her, his father, Sandy's father, and he's a bit of a roustabout. He works where he can but and seems to have a deep love for his son and particularly for his wife, but he has trouble making a living, and this uh, becomes a, a real tension in the family. He's absent for much of the novel, but he's a major force in Sandy's thoughts. Um, Next, we have Aunt Hagar. Despite being called Aunt Hagar, she's actually Sandy's grandmother. She is very religious, very conservative. She fears the impact of the city on her children. She see, tends to see sin and corruption in any kind of urban life. Um, she is was born a slave. She tends to apologize for white people's bad behavior, and she tends to promote a view that slavery perhaps wasn't that bad or that race relations aren't as bad as the more radical um, activists tend to think or even the most radical people nearby. She reinforces the idea that Jim Boy is a weak father and she turns out to be the most important woman in young Sandy's upbringing. Next we have Harriet Williams. This is Sandy's young aunt. She's not that much older than than Sandy actually. I, I don't I can't think of the exact age but she's the youngest of that uh, batch of kids so she's kind of between her sisters her two sisters generation and and sandy um, she's a musician she's a bit of a party girl she wants to live in the city and she wants to escape rural life uh, in rural kansas the tension between her and hagar are a major theme of the novel um, hagar is in some sense like the last claim she has to to her children and uh, losing her Growing distant from her is a, is a main tension, source of tension in the novel. She ends up becoming a successful performer, but only after difficulty. Ne the last character that's really important is Tempe Siles. This is Sandy's other aunt. Uh, Tempe is, is married. She's fairly well off, uh, described in the novel as rich, although I, I'm not sure what that means. We don't got like any pecuniary 
evidence of how wealthy they are. I, it seems middle class is probably the the way to put it. She's part of the black middle class. There is resentment between her and her sisters over Tempe's unwillingness to support her family more. She does eventually take in Sandy when Hagar dies. She represents the influence of W.E.B. Du Bois on the black middle class. She believes Sandy should become mature and become one of those quote-unquote talented 10th that Du Bois um, talked about. And now this contrasts with Aunt Hagar, who maybe is more of the Booker T. Washington, more conservative trend. Uh, this this tension between these two schools of thought runs throughout these Harlem Renaissance novels a lot. I'm actually um, surprised how often it's coming up because it was always kind of a cliche in teaching history, which is what I, I do from time to time. You know, they've got the Booker T. Washington and the W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, debate um, at the turn of the century. But, you know, it wasn't just something historians have imposed. It runs throughout these works really sharply. Um, the major tensions of the plot are pretty much worked out just by listing these characters. You have, you know, all these different points of view um, and, and lifestyles and dreams. Uh, but with that, uh, let's get into the plot. Um, chapter one, Storm. A very exciting beginning to the novel. A tornado hits the home, destroying this farm home in Kansas, destroying the porch. The family is in chaos because they can't find Sandy's mother, Angie. Um, after the storm passes, they learn that their neighbor, a good white family named Gavit, has been killed. We also learn about Hagar's overdramatic personality, her deep religiosity, and her concerns about the flighty nature of her daughters. Um, chapter 2, Conversation. This chapter reveals the gossipy nature of the Williams family. This is important because Sandy is constantly being reminded uh, through conversations that he's sitting in on that his father is untrustworthy and absent while he's being openly criticized um, by the, other, the women of the family. It's the, the, the influence of these various women is so strong on Sandy's upbringing. He, he simply does not have a strong male figure for much of his life. And even when he moves into, towards the end of the novel, moves into Tempe's household, the father there, the husband there, is not really very present, and he's not a big influence on his upbringing. So he, it's, he's being raised by a series of women, essentially. We, and here it's highlighted in this chapter how gossipy they are. We find frank and open discussions about race that certainly would have affected uh, Sandy's upbringing as well and his attitude towards white people. It's clear that Hagar sees Tempe as the good child because she has moved up in society. Okay, I had to pause and, and kind of find where I'm at. Um, there's, there's passages I want to quote here, but... As I said earlier in my first episode on the Harlem Renaissance series, I, I, want to, I don't want to use the N-word. It, it's a lot, used a lot in these conversations, so I have to kind of find the right passage and, and do, this, do this right. Um, here's what she says about Tempe. Last time I'd see Tempe, she told me she couldn't stand a Baptist no more. Too many low blacks belonging, she said. So she's going to join Father Hill's church where the best people go. I told her I didn't think much of joining a church so far from God that they didn't want nothing but yellow for members. And so full of forms and fashions that a good Christian shouldn't shout. But she went and joined. She's a style and temple, that's why. So I ain't said no more. Tempe's going on 35 now. She's my oldest child and I reckon she knows how she wants to act. End quote. So, um... 
you know, because she's well off, she's the most secure of her children, and she's kind of the good child who, who's got ahead. And so she apologizes for her decisions. But we see in here Tempe already being associating kind of with the better, the middle class, the better types. Now, the most important theme in these conversations, which are all dominated by Anne Hagar, is the importance of religion. What seems to really come across in this chapter is the deep, oppressive gossipiness and the lack of any male influence on Sandy's upbringing. Um, chapter 3, Jim Boy's letter. So Angie receives notice that Jim Boy is coming home because he hurt his back and can no longer work on the railroad. Hagar is immediately dubious, using the letter as another chance to complain about her roustabout son-in-law. Angie tries to defend her husband from, from Hagar, saying things like, well, when he works, he, tried, he works really hard. Uh, he hurts his back because he's a hard worker. He does his best. You know, that just she, she's kind of stating what we know as readers, that black men just have a hard time making a living uh, in this time in American history, um, that jobs aren't very secure. It's hard for them to get union jobs. And, you know, it's just tough. And Hagar doesn't understand the way the world works. I think there's a lot of generational conflict in here. Um, we have some sympathy for Jim Boy because we know it's not really his fault. And we learn later on that he's a good guy. But the impression we get throughout this part of the novel is just that he is flighty. It's because Hagar dominates uh, so much of the narrative of the family. But we see in the life of Jim Boy the importance of mobility for African-Americans at the time who wanted to make a living. In fact, especially coming out of the countryside. In fact, the inability to find secure employment seemed to force this mobility. We learned that Jim Boy's not really lazy, but the color line is affecting his social mobility. We have seen this before, most notably in Home to Harlem. Quote, Jim Boy was always going, but Anne Hanger was wrong about his never working. It was just that he couldn't stay in one place all the time. He had been born running, he said, and had run ever since. Besides, what was there in Stanton anyways for a young colored fellow to do except dig sewer ditches for a few cents an hour or maybe port around a store for $7 a week? Colored men couldn't get many jobs in Stanton and foreigners were coming in and taking away what little work they did have. No wonder he didn't stay home. Hadn't Angie's father been in Stanton 40 years and hadn't he died with Anne Hagar still taking in washings to help with the house? There was no well-paid work for Negro men, so Angie did not blame Jim Boy for going away and looking for something better. He doesn't want to be noble. He wants to be present for his son. He married Angie to help give his children some security that he couldn't provide. However, this is not the message Sandy hears from his grandmother. Chapter 4, Thursday Afternoon. This chapter is about Harriet Williams and her growing conflict with her mother. Harriet wants to get a job working at a hotel, which Hagar will not allow since she immediately assumes that hotels are a place, dens of sin. Now, it's a bit irrational. It's just a hotel job. As Harriet points out, the hotel is hardly a disreputable place. Um, but Hagar is simply too old-fashioned to make the distinction. Anything urban, anything modern is, in her point of view, trouble. Now, later on in the novel, we learn that Hagar was at least a little bit right, that these hotels had prostitutes who rented out rooms constantly. They had connections with bootleggers who would bring in liquor. So there's, there is sin there but it's not that just because you work in a hotel you're going to become a prostitute or something that's um a bit far however there you know what i thought about when reading this was the 
1920s culture wars. I actually think this point is like right around World War One, where this is set at this point. Um, but you have really the 1920s culture wars in the backdrop here, this kind of urban rural tension. As the city becomes the center of American life and American culture and American values, more and more in the early 20th century, this countryside seemed to got left behind. And out of this, we get the Stokes monkey, the, the Stokes, Scopes monkey trial, you know, which is really a tension between the countryside and the city. Uh, we have these rural social movements like the Ku Klux Klan, which were really reacting against the, the urban and the modern and the immigrant cultures and, of course, African-Americans and their growing power. Um, the rise of fundamentalism. All these things are reflecting kind of a, a growing culture wars that really manifest in the 1920s. Um, anyway, chapter five, guitar. This chapter is named after Jim Boy's constant companion, a guitar. Jim Boy arrives back home and is able to bring quite a lot of joy and happiness to the farm. What he contributes most clearly is music, which begins to sound out throughout the farm. We witness how deep Angie's passion and love for Jim Boy is, how happy she, you know, he makes her, and how happy she makes him. Jim Boy even begins to have a growing closeness between, brings a growing closeness between Harriet and Angie because they share a love of music. And, you know, it's just, Jim Boy coming in is just a, such an awakening uh, for the whole family, and it livens up the text because it, it's been a bit bleak, bleak to this point, um, where we, we just feel this oppression that Sandy feels surrounded by these women. But but Jim Boy kind of is a spark um, to it. The final paragraph of this chapter is a pretty important in setting up the relationships as they stand at this point in the novel. Quote, but at midnight, when the owl had nested in a tree near the corner, began to hoot. They were all asleep. Angie and Jim Boy in one room, Harriet and Hagar in another, with Sandy on the floor of the foot of his grandmother's bed. Far away, the railroad line of a whistle, blue, lonesome, and long. So we have Jim Boy and Angie in love together. We have them not sleeping with their son, but sleeping together. We have Hagar trying to protect um, Harriet by sleeping with her. We have a neglected Sandy at the foot of the bed with his grandmother. And outside, we witness the March of Progress represented by the railroad, the institution that gave Jim Boy some work, dragged him out of the farm, and would over time bring an entire generation of African Americans out of the countryside to the city. It's a really, just in a few lines, a really striking um, image. Chapter 6, Work. This is an oddly titled chapter because of the people performing the work. Jim Boy takes Sandy out fishing, the result of which becomes Jim Boy's largest contribution to the family economy he had made since coming. Sandy has a chance to help Angie in her workplace, where she serves a white family, the Rices. She supplements her income by bringing food back with her. And again, the final line of a chapter makes an important point. Um, once Angie had spoken to her son, Evening's the only time we blacks have to ourselves, she said. Thank God for night. Because all day you give to white folks. Right? This is the point. This is the, the, the fate of people um, serving, you know, living, living in a racist culture where the jobs are at the behest of, of whites. Oh, and by the way, the um, I switched the word, um, the N-word to black there. Um, so you can kind of fill it in if you feel the need to.
Chapter 7, White Folks. Now, this chapter is focused on Williams and Rogers talking, the Williams and Rogers family joined together, talking about white people. Hagar wants, to, uh, wants blacks to get over slavery and racism. Using religion, she assumes that white people are lost to money and corruption and sin anyways. So it's not really, you know, adding racism or their bigotry to their sin is only, is, is not a big deal. And this is kind of a Protestant approach to this perhaps you know we're all fallen we're all sinful anyways so adding racism to it is not necessarily making them more condemned to hell it's 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 something just a product of their sinful nature um and the solution to that is better religion better you know is is finding jesus a friend sister johnson who's of the same generation of Anne hagar she's more brutal and she has nasty stories from slavery she tells stories about white people, which involve violence and the burning of an African-American community. Community. Now, Jim Bowie's positions on this are practical because he seems he knows he has to go get to go to white people for jobs. Um, so he's not, you know, really being too harsh one way or another, not really taking sides. He's just saying this is the world we live in. He also knows that blacks are being exploited from both sides, uh, both from the side of work and, and consumption. But there's not much he can do. He kind of can only face it with ennui. This is what he says. Oh, they got us cornered all right. The white folk are like farmers that own all the cows and let us take care of them. But they make you pay a sweet price for skim milk and keep the cream for themselves. Harriet largely agrees with Jim Boy, but concludes with uh, more rage about the situation. Chapter 8, Dance. Over the wishes of Hagar, Harriet goes to a dance. She's supposed to be babysitting Sandy, and she kind of goes to Sandy and says, well, I'm going out to this dance. You just stay here and chill. Sandy says, well, why don't you take me with you? And so eventually Harriet takes Sandy um, with, with her to this dance hall. And we get a nice description of their night out in this chapter. It's a beautiful chapter of just joy and pleasure. And the whole importance of pleasure and happiness and joy and and how it reflects in African-American culture is a major theme of the novel. And I'll have to really save most of this to the second half of this episode, you know, when I do the second half of the novel, because this is really Hugh's point here. And he doesn't really articulate it till the end of the novel, but it's the seeds are being planted in the early part here, particularly in this chapter. She returns. It's past four o'clock. Harriet needs to get Sandy to his proper sleeping place before anyone notices. But the next morning, Hagar is waiting for Harriet with a Bible and a, quote, bundle of switches, which I'm assuming is just something to beat her with. And we learn in the next chapter that Harriet was, in fact, beaten by Hagar for her actions that night. Um, this is kind of the last straw between Harriet and Hagar, by the way. Chapter 9, Carnival. This is another chapter on public amusements. I like this period of American literature, the 1980s to the 1930s, in part because they do put a lot of stress on these various public amusements and all of their diversity. In this case, it's a carnival that comes to town. Pretty much everyone except Hagar makes use of the carnival. Sandy is focused most of the time uh, on attending revivals, which were set up opposite the carnival. I don't know if this was a common thing, like when the, that carnival came to town, the revival would show up for the religious people. Um, you know, but you know, I'm thinking of this TV series, uh, short-lived from the about the 1930s carnival, um, and there in that TV series, it's called Carnival, right? It's it's about the supernatural stuff, but there's 
you know, a lot of great social history of carnival life in that series and the tension with the religion, the religious, is manifest in that tale as well. Um, but Harriet, Angie, and Jim Boy, the kind of, these are still pretty young people, right? So they're enjoying the carnival and all it has to offer. Um, Jim Boy makes sure that Sandy can enjoy some of the carnival time, but largely he's being forced to go to the revivals with, with Hagar. At the conclusion of the carnival, Harriet sets Sandy aside and tells her, tells him that she's decided to stay with the carnival. She's unable to survive any longer under the oppressive control of her mother. Chapter 10, Punishment. In this chapter, we get a wide pan panoramic of Sandy's life during the rest of the summer in Stanton. One day, he spends his Sunday school donation money, which is five cents, on candy instead of giving it to the church. And I, I'm thinking when I went to Sunday school, I had the same thing. I mean, the parents gave, my parents gave donations in the tray. I was raised Lutheran, and they would give donations in the tray. But I remember, like, at Sunday school, we had a little pass-the-plate-around thing, too. Um, so, I, at least when I was growing up, this was still a thing. You'd have to give some Sunday school money. It, this time it was five cents, but he kept it. He pocketed it, spent it on candy. Hagar demands that Jim Boy present a unified front on punishing Sandy for what, in her mind, was stealing money from the church. And we get a sense that Jim Boy may have been sympathetic to Sandy, but he's kind of negligent in his fatherly duties. Uh, he gives him a lecture, you know, that black people shouldn't do this. It's don't be like white people. That's white people's what they do. They steal, um, but we're not like that. But you get a sense that maybe he's a little bit sympathetic to, to Sandy. He at least doesn't want to punish him harshly. Um, but this harsh language is the punishment enough, and Sandy feels humiliated in front of his father. And we get a sense that despite Jim Boy's flippant attitude as a father, Sandy is still capable of feeling deep shame in front of him and the importance of, of this relationship with his father. And perhaps it's that he just really wants to have this relationship with his, with his dad. Chapter 11, School. Sandy is back to school the following September. Kansas is not Jim Crow, at least apparently it's not, because uh, Sandy and the other black kids in the neighborhood go to the same school as the white kids. But uh, maybe that's just that, that town or that school district. But anyways, it's, it seems not to be um, segregated fully. But the black students are being treated differently. They're put in the back of the classroom. The white kids were all arranged alphabetical, but in the back were all the black kids. Um, Jimmy Boy, Jim Boy can't afford the books on Sandy's reading list. So Sandy got like a reading list of books he's supposed to buy. And, you know, it's basically Jim Boy empties his pockets. And so this is all I have, um, which may or may not be enough to pay for the books. Uh, and again, we see kind of this, this the, the lack of Jim Boy's capacity to be a fully fleshed out father for, for Sandy. Sandy returns from buying the books and he's excited to show them to his father, but at this point, he finds Jim Boy's left. He, he's left literally in the time, you know, while he was gone buying the books. And he only told Hagar that his, quote, traveling blues done come on, end quote. So he's, he's back on the road. Um, chapter 12, Hard Winter. Um, Hagar's resentment over Jim Boy continues, and she verbally abuses her daughters over her choices. Times are rough as the autumn turns to winter. The family is able to survive by Hagar doing laundry, which is kind of how she brings in her money. Angie is still working for the Rices, um, so those are the main sources of income. The f home is constantly filled with drying clothes, and I, I was trying—I had this image in this in my 
this really horrible image actually of just like you it's winter so you can't really spend much time outside but the house is full of these drying sheets and clothing of other people and you know if you've ever dried clothing in the home you you know just how oppressive that can be and you were not gonna you know it's clothes like over everything and that's not even your clothes it's other people's clothes and it's constant it's not just laundry day it's constant um presence of this drying clothes it's really a striking image they can still look only for they can look forward to christmas but they know it'll be a tight one angie is feeling especially disgruntled this winter over the loss of her over her husband um, this is page 103 of the library of america version angie was able to sit up now and she said she felt better but she looked ashen and tired she wanted to get back to work so she'd have a little money for christmas and be able to help Hagar with the doctor's bill. But she guessed she couldn't. And since she was still worrying about Jim Boy. Three months had passed since he went away. A longer time than usual that he hadn't written. Maybe something had happened to him. Maybe he was out of work and hungry. Because of this was a hard winter. Maybe he was dead. So instead of getting news from Jim Boy. They get a plea for help from Harriet. Who needs money to come home. Which the family can't afford to send. I, I think they figure she would need like like twenty dollars to get back home for like the Greyhound ticket, which they they don't have. They only have a few bucks. They're they're able to send a little bit of money to basically um, keep her alive, but that's it. Um, chapter thirteen, Christmas. They do try to figure out how to send some money to Harriet. All Angie can do is send what little money they have saved up, which is kind of the Christmas money. It's three dollars. Um, that Christmas, Sandy gets a new sled, which was handmade by a neighbor. Now, Tempe and her husband, are, now that's interesting, actually, that, that, you know, the community comes together a little bit and says, we want to make sure Sandy has a good Christmas, and they, they make them this sled. Now, Tempe and her husband arrive to celebrate Christmas, and they bring gifts of their own. And now we got the poor family with the rich relative who comes in and, uh, you know, with all the gifts, um, you know, spoiling everyone, and it. It can be a bit humiliating, um, you know, if you think about it. And, you know, if you come from a poor family, maybe you had experiences like this. It's it's awkward. And even the kids know, you know, it's weird when the gifts you get are handmade or humble for, or very practical. And a rich relative comes in with all the fancy gifts that your parents couldn't provide for you. Um, that's what happens here. So they come in with this beautiful illustrated copy of Anderson's Fairy Tales. And it makes the other gifts look a bit silly. But Sandy feels self-conscious about this. And she kind of re he rejects this book. And he says, I want the sled. I want these gifts from, you know, my, my grandmother and my mother. It causes a bit of a, a scene. And, of course, you know, her, his mom's like, no, you have to accept this. It's a nice book. Tempe got it for you. And it's, it's, but he somehow feels really ashamed about this. It's, it's a really powerful moment. Um, Chapter 14, Return. So after Christmas, Angie goes back to work for the Rices and Sandy goes back to school. Sandy does well in his studies. Sometime in February, Harriet finally comes home. And she starts to set a parallel to, um, to Jim Boy in being bounced around job, um, job to job. This is what she says. Jobs are like hen's teeth. Try and find them. And she shrugged her shoulders as Sandy had so often seen her do. But she no longer seemed to like be seen like a little girl. She was growing up and hard and strange now. But he still loved her. So Harriet comes back changed due to the harshness of just finding work. Um, 
But the visit turns out to be just that. She does not even take her suitcase from the train station. She announces that she has a job and leaves almost as quickly as she came. She does not even stay for dinner. It's heavily suggested that she has gone through, gotten through hard times by becoming a prostitute. Um, so she says, I gotta go now. A tiny perfume bottle in the bag had broken from the fall, and as she went through the cold front room towards the door, an order of cheap and poignant drugstore violets dripped across the house. It turns out that she is at least partially working as a prostitute uh, in the city, and that's how she's making her, her, her you know, her, her bread. Chapter 15, one by one. Um, the main event in this chapter is that Angie decides to go to Detroit to meet Jim Boy, leaving Sandy behind in Stanton with Hagar, who is getting increasingly sick. Sandy feels a deep conflict between his duty to his grandmother, who has raised him and now is basically alone and can't really always take care of herself very well, and the parents that he wants to live with and the parents that he loves. Quote, Sandy wished Angie would take him and her with her when she went to join Jim Boy. But then Aunt Hanger would have to be all by herself, and Grandma was too was so nice to him that he would hate to leave her alone. But who would cut wood for her then? And when that got too big, who would go to Detroit? But when he got big, he would go to Detroit. Maybe New York too, when his geography said had the tallest buildings in the world and trains that ran under the river. He wondered if there were any colored people in New York, how ugly African colored folks looked in the geography with bushy heads and wild eyes. Aunt Haggard said her mother was an African, but she wasn't ugly or wild. Neither was Aunt Hagar. Neither was the little, dark Willie May. That was a friend of his. And they were all black like Africans. So we start to see him wanting to break free of this, very, this environment. And he's starting to understand how white people see him through the textbooks that he's reading in school. But he feels this obligation to stay um, with, with Hagar with his grandmother. In this chapter, we see the burden of, of being the person left behind in a culture that is increasingly on the move. We also see the deep psychological burden of parentage on the young Sandy. Well, so this is a good place to end, I think. We have gone through half of the novel's 30 chapters and, and actually more than half of the text of the, the, of the novel. It's 218 pages and we're well over half of that. So, um, but it's about half of the chapters. It's a good break in the novel because the, what we've read up to this point is basically one year in the life of, of young Sandy. The other second half covers several years as Sandy matures into adulthood. Being left behind with Hagar leaves Sandy in a very dangerous position where he is responsible for caring for an aging grandparent. And the younger people in his, in his life, his parents, his aunts, have left, which in Sandy's mind is the type of abandonment. How he comes to terms with this will be explored in the next episode when we conclude... Uh, looking at not without laughter. So thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, please rate, subscribe, share, um, you know, tell people about this podcast. Uh, you can send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. Uh, if you do, I'll, I'll try to respond to it on, on the air. Um, I've recently started a, a subsidiary podcast called the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Uh, if you enjoyed science fiction or you enjoy Philip K. Dick, you may you know, you want to look at that. That, that. Those are starting to be released um, now. There should be several episodes by the time this one is uploaded. So with that, I'll go. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you in 100 pages. So wait a while. I'll show you child. 
just how to treat a no good man make him stay at home washing out tell all the neighbors he done lost his mind give you house rent shakes on saturday night monday morning you woke up